0: Looks like there's going to be some energy in the back today. More power to them. All right, let's pray before we open up the word. Father. As we dig into scripture today, and we see what you have for us today in this text. Lord, I pray that you open up truth to us, uh, that you open our hearts to your leading. Help us to respond to you in a way that brings you honor, that brings you glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So there's a, a word that kind of goes around now called the goat. Y'all know what the goat means? What's the goat mean? Somebody shout it out. Now, it used to mean like 20 years ago, if you were the goat, that means you're the reason the team lost. You're like the scapegoat or you're the reason that your company's like doing terrible. You're the goat. But now it's the greatest of all time. Um, so let's play a little game. I get to walk out with y'all today, so it might creep you out a little bit if I'm out here in, in the audience. I need a microphone, actually. I'm still in a mic. What color do you want me to get, Jonesy? Does the red work? Yeah, red. All right, red works. We're going red. That's not on, so we're going to turn it on. All right, so uh, let's talk about what some of the goats are. What is the greatest song of all time? You're supposed to give an answer. How Great Thou Art. See, Jesus juked you all because you all were all thinking like the Beatles or something different. How Great Thou Art. Great song. Uh, Greatest athlete of all time here, Bo. Michael Jordan. Hey, hey. Is this on? Yeah, it's on. Say it louder. Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. If you said LeBron, I was going to kick you out of the church. So we're good there. What's the best movie of all time? We're good with a student here. Uh, Avengers. The Avengers. (laughs) Incorrect, but not a bad choice. I would have went with the Shawshank Redemption, but, you know, whatever. Let's see. I got some more on my list here. Uh, All right. Let's just give you a choice. Uh, Greatest of all time, Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Coke. All right. Amen. You love Jesus. Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Coke. One more. Mountain Dew. (laughs) Not a choice, but that's okay. The greatest of all time has become part of our regular vernacular. You see... Uh, that on lists all the time. Christy and I and the kids were at the Southern Baptist Convention in New Orleans. And while we were there, you know, we looked up what's the best restaurant in the area. So you find lists that tell you the best restaurants, lists that tell you the best movies. You see them on social media. You see it on TripAdvisor. Just Google it. You're going to get a list that someone has made without any sense to it at all, just things that they like. It's been said that the greatest book ever written is? Oh, you good church people. Uh, The Bible. And they say that because it is, well... Even non-Christians will say that there's some of the best stories that's ever been told in the Bible. Even if they don't believe it's true, they will agree that, that it, it tells some great stories and some great morals. But it's also the greatest selling book of all time. It's sold way more copies. I don't remember the stats of any other book in history. And sold even more than they can tell you because they didn't used to keep records of things like that. So the Bible, the greatest book of all time, but do you all, I would assume, realize it's not a book. It's a collection of books. Everybody knows that? Sixty-six different books in the Bible, written by different authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we believe it to be the Word of God. So the Bible, the collection of books, it's been said by scholars who are smarter than me that while the Bible is the greatest book of all time, the greatest book in the Bible is the book of Romans. We've been going through the book of Romans since I think it was early February. We're going to go through it for most of this year. And the book of Romans is the heart and soul of our faith. Not that it's the most important, but it kind of sums everything up in our faith in the book of Romans. So we're studying that because I believe that if we can understand the book of Romans, then you will be able to take a huge leap in your walk with Jesus. It's been said that The book of Romans is the greatest book in the Bible. But within the book of Romans, it has been said that the greatest chapter in the book of Romans is chapter 8. So Romans, the heart and soul of the Bible, chapter 8 is the heart and soul of the book of Romans. And then even on top of that, John Piper says that the greatest verse in all of the Bible, the heart and soul of chapter 8, which is the heart and soul of the book of Romans, which is the heart and soul of the Bible... Is chapter 8, verse 1. And here's what chapter 8, verse 1 says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now before we stepped away from Romans a couple of weeks ago and took a little break, we finished up Romans chapter 7. If you were here as we walked through Romans 7, I, I told you that we should be incredibly encouraged by especially that second half of Romans 7 because in that, we see that we're not alone. You, you see that one of the, the greatest Christians of all time, the one who he'd be in the Hall of Fame, the Apostle Paul, wrote much of our New Testament, struggled with sin In that we see Paul saying, I keep doing things that I hate and and I can't do the things that I love in Christ. He struggled with temptation. So we should be encouraged by the fact that it's not just us little Christians who, who struggle with daily sin. Even the great apostle Paul struggled with daily sin. But if that was encouraging... Chapter 8 and verse 1 specifically of chapter 8 should be cause for the greatest celebration you've ever seen in your life. Last uh, October, one of the greatest days for us UT football fans happened. How many years had it been since we had beaten Alabama? As you may know? How many? 16? 15? That place was nuts. I wasn't there. Some of you all were there. Uh watching it on television as that ball goes through the uprights to win the game and the place just erupts. Uh, My den erupted as well. You know, I was celebrating, uh, was excited about what happened. I saw this week a video that someone, they had a downtown Knoxville apartment and they were shooting off their balcony with the game playing in the background. And as Tennessee wins the game, they're, they're videoing the fireworks going off from the stadium. Then they they start cheering themselves, the camera's looking like this, I mean, it was, it was great. And then you hear everybody in downtown Knoxville honking their horns, everybody's celebrating. See videos of people walking outside the stadium singing, it's great to be a Tennessee Vol, maybe we should sing that this morning, that's a hymn, right? Except for Havila, she would disagree. That's how, yeah, we're going to close it out with it's great to be a Tennessee ball. is going to lead. Um, <laughs> they tore down the goalposts. They rushed the field. I mean, it was absolute insanity. People with smiles on their face and celebrated into the wee hours of the night doing things that God would not approve of, but they were still celebrating. And We read verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that should be cause for greater celebration than any football going through an upright. That should be what we celebrate as a church. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That deserves an amen. That's your turn to celebrate just a little bit. I know we're Baptists. We can say amen. That deserves an amen. amen. It's getting there. But most of us don't really believe it. We say it, but we don't really believe it. Because we, we hear that word condemnation, and we think of things like a, throw that slide up here. Think, think of things like this a house or a building that's been. Condemned, And and the sign says, this area is deemed unfit for human habitation or this this building is unfit for use. And we think that that's what Paul's talking about. And we say, what do you mean there's no condemnation? I know how terrible I am. I know what I thought this morning or did last night. I know how I spoke to my wife or my kids or my friends. I know the tests that I cheated on in school, tie. I know all of these... Yeah, I, called you out. I know all of these things. So how can you say there's no condemnation? I'm unfit to be used. I'm unfit to be a part of the kingdom. But that's not what Paul is talking about. As he talks about condemnation, he's talking about the legal standing of condemnation. It is to be condemned, to be found guilty, to be sentenced to death in hell. He says, you, if you're in Christ, you are not condemned. You are not sentenced. Most of us, we don't really believe it because we hear, I'm not worthy. Or you'll you'll even say things, if I was to have a private conversation with you, many of you would say, if I ask you to do something in the church... but but you don't know I struggle with this. Or, Or you don't know that I have this addiction. Or you don't know that my wife and I fight every single night. Or you don't know that I mishandle my finances. I can't serve in the church. I'm not good enough to serve in the church. You're right, I don't know. It doesn't matter. God knows. And God says you are not condemned. The truth is you will never be worthy, but Jesus is worthy. You are not condemned. He says you must be in Christ Jesus or all you have is condemnation. There is no hope. But Jesus is good enough, so I don't have to be good enough. He covered it. Now, that brings up the question. We've talked about this as we've gone through the book of Romans. So that means, I mean, I'm forgiven of sin, past sin, future sin, present sin. That sounds pretty cool. Um, I can do whatever I want, right? But that, Paul argues against that. We've already gone through that section where he's arguing against that. Paul says, absolutely not. That doesn't get us off the hook for our behavior. That means we are empowered to actually act like God's called us to act. Paul says no, and he's telling us all through the book of Romans what this means is that your hope is no longer based on anything that you do. It's all based on Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. A lot of Christians, really every faith and many Christians will teach you this, um, specifically to Christianity. Some denominations even teach this as their core doctrine. It's what, you, what Christ did for you. He died on the cross. Plus what you do in your life. And if those two things add up, then you get life with Christ in heaven for eternity. But Paul argues against that all through the New Testament. It's not A plus B equals C. It is if Christ did this, then I have accepted him as my Savior, doing nothing in and of myself Because of what he did and because I have committed my life to him, I get eternity in heaven. See, it takes you totally out of the equation. It is not what you do. It is only the work of Christ. But how do we respond to that? And how do we live out what God has called us to do in our life if it's all about Just what Jesus has accomplished. How do we walk in the faith? Only in the power of the Holy Spirit. We do not have the capability to accomplish any of this on our own. Only through the the power of the Spirit can we live the life God has called us to live. John chapter 16, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, which I'm sure the disciples probably balked at at first. I mean, he's saying, I'm leaving you, and it's good for you that I go. And they're probably looking at Jesus because, remember, he wasn't just their Lord. He was like their best friend. And he's saying, you're better off if I leave. He says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage if I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, which is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And then down in verse 13, it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. So Jesus is saying you can't make it through this life as a believer without the help of the Holy Spirit. The the Spirit is our helper. He guides us through all the steps of life, helping us walk as believers. So how does the Holy Spirit help us? And that's what we see played out throughout chapter 8. So let's look at the full text for today. Chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And all God's people said... There you go. You got it that time. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He nailed sin to the cross, literally, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk. It cannot. In other words, if you're not indwelt by the Spirit, you've got no hope. You can't even submit to God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is our only hope of getting out of this life, doing anything that glorifies God. And I want to be clear because I realize there's different faith backgrounds in here. And there are denominations that teach you get saved and then you get a second baptism of the Holy Spirit at some later time. But that can't be true based on this text because if you are saved, Paul says, you have the Spirit within you. If you have not already received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he says you are not in Christ. You have no salvation. So at the moment you have committed your life to Christ, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And how does that play out in us? How does he help us along the way? Well, let's look at some key things here. The first thing we see is the Holy Spirit assures us that God will never change his mind about you. If you are in Christ, his mind is made up. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. Now, in this present moment, condemnation is gone. And if it's gone now, it has to be gone for all the future. So if you are in Christ right now, at this moment, He has His mind made up about you. You are not guilty. There is no condemnation found in you forever. If you are in Christ, His mind is, is made up about you. You have been declared innocent. There is no guilt on you. You are unstained forever. When the Father looks on you, He doesn't relate to you. He doesn't see your sin and the terrible things you may have done this week. He sees the blood of His Son covering you. There is no condemnation in you, He sees the lamb that was sacrificed for you in his son. You are not worthy, but he is. And because if you're in Christ, you've been covered by that, that makes you worthy. Nothing that you've done. But how do we know that? It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. For example, we see in Psalm 103, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Big amen there. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him, who are in Christ Jesus, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Celebrate that. We should be ecstatic over that. That is good news. You're innocent not guilty you are unstained if you are in Christ Jesus the verdict is in he has already made up his mind about you so why do we continue to condemn ourselves why do we continue continue to look at ourselves and say well, I can't be used in any sort of ministry for God. I've messed up. If I brought all of our elders up here along the stage and made them confess the sin in their life, you would think, how in the world are they elders? Because we've all messed up. But the Holy Spirit in us assures us that you are not condemned, that God will never change His mind about you. And the Holy Spirit, it also liberates us from the power of sin. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How did He do it? By sending His Son to pay the price for your sin. And it liberates us from the power of sin. Before you were in Christ, you really have no choice in the matter. You're going to submit to temptation. It looks good to you. But once we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, even though we still have those temptations, we can say no to those things. We don't a lot of times. But you have the power to only in the Holy Spirit. You are set free from the power of sin in your life. We talk about sin, and I've mentioned it over and over again. Scripture really narrows sin down to this. It's the, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It's those, those things that we covet, those things that we partake in, and those things that we just put ourselves as the center of. That is really what sin boils down to. The Holy Spirit has set you free from those things. Without the Holy Spirit, you are in bondage to those things. So we hear so often, whatever you do in life, just be true to yourself. That's where the lies are coming in in our society. That's where gender confusion comes in. That's where the way that we, we manage the blessings God has given us financially or mismanaged, that's where it comes in. That's where choosing a career path that we know doesn't bring glory to God, that's where that comes in. Be true to yourself. It's a lie. Or, or the big one, I've heard this my whole life is growing up through school and watching things and, you know, just follow your heart. Your heart does nothing but gets you in trouble. Scripture says that your heart is filthy. It's a liar. It's dirty. There is no good that comes from a human heart. We are eaten up with sin. It is false theology. It is a lie. Freedom only comes in Christ. So he's assured us that he's never going to change our mind about us. And the Holy Spirit gives us freedom. It liberates us from sin. But I still have temptations. So how exactly do I do this? Well, the Holy Spirit also empowers us to live this life that is worthy of the gospel. Verses 9 and 11, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. He is who gives you the power to live this life. He's called you to. The Holy Spirit brings you life. Apart from the Spirit is only death. I believe when Paul talks about the flesh brings us death, he's not just talking about that day where we take our last breath on this earth and you either go to heaven or go to hell. That's an implication here, but even for Christians who are stuck in this cycle of the flesh, it is bringing you death right now. It's separating you from the Spirit. It is killing your witness, killing your walk. It is bringing you death in your faith. It's a spiritual thing that Paul is talking about here. So if the Holy Spirit does all of these things, And it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us. What in the world is my role in this? Does the Spirit just do it for me? No. He gives you the capability. And Paul says your role is to walk in the Spirit according to the Spirit. You think about walking, that's really an interesting analogy that Paul uses here. Uh, Christy and I and the kids, as I told you, went to New Orleans two weeks ago. We drove to New Orleans. Has anybody ever driven to New Orleans? That's a long way away, driving through Mississippi. Did you know there's nothing in Mississippi, by the way? Like pe- I didn't even see people in Mississippi. It was, anyways. So Google Maps says to drive to uh, New Orleans is nine and a half hours. We've got two kids, so it's more like 12 hours, and that's making good time. I mean, that's only, you know, stopping, go pee, come back, kind of thing. So we get there, it took us about 12 and a half hours to get there. So this week, I was just playing around, I thought, I wonder how long it'd take to walk to New Orleans. So apparently, according to Google Maps, if you walk to New Orleans, now this is without stopping, this is just walking, 21 days. 12 hours to drive, or nine and a half if you don't have kids. 21 days to walk. Now, imagine you only walk half the day because who's going to walk 24 hours a day for 21 straight days? It's probably going to take you like a month and a half to walk to New Orleans. Walking is a gradual thing. It's not just this overnight process. It is moving you from this destination to this destination, but it is doing so in one step at a time. You were here, now you are there. It is a gradual process. But it's really a cool analogy. I mean, just tell me if this isn't the coolest thing. Y'all watch me. I was there a minute ago. Now I'm here. You all seem incredibly underwhelmed by that. (laughs) I don't blame you. I would be too. But that's the analogy that Paul is giving here. It's one step at a time, moving from here to there slowly, but taking one step in front of the other. And this is where we get confused so, much, so often. So many people think that the Holy Spirit only moves in these dramatic, experiential ways. Like moving in these, in these big healings, or speaking in tongues, or all of these things. It's clear in, in Scripture the Holy Spirit does move in those ways. But more often than not, the Holy Spirit moves in subtle ways where you almost wouldn't even realize it's happening. Slowly, the Holy Spirit is doing work in the background of your life. Small, incremental steps. And you know what those small, incremental steps do? They change your life. Those small, incremental steps, when you are struggling with a sin, say you're struggling today, I can't stop looking at pornography. So tomorrow I take a step and and yeah, I got a little bit away from it. But it feels like it's still bearing down. But you continue in the Spirit taking the step and before you know it, you're here a year later and you say, yeah, I still struggle with the sin but a year ago I couldn't go a day without looking at it. Small, incremental steps change your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. How do we do it? Well, there's kind of a companion passage that goes along, really two companion passages that goes along with this. The first one's in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He's saying the only way you accomplish this is when you live every single day filling your mind with things that are above. That's why spiritual disciplines are so important. If you've not been in, if your Bible has dust on it, you're not walking in the Spirit. If you haven't prayed anything more than just a thank you for a meal, you're not walking in the Spirit. If you haven't served somewhere, whether it's in the church or in some parachurch ministry, you're not walking in the Spirit. If you're not following obedience in giving, you're not walking in the Spirit. If you aren't showing kindness to to those who you come in contact every single day, you're not walking in the Spirit. If you're not sharing what God has done in your life through the power of the gospel, you're not walking in the Spirit. He says walk in the Spirit, but we've got opposing desires. How do we fight it? If you go to Golden Corral, we got any Buffet fans in here? A couple in the back. Last time I went to Golden Corral, I had to mortgage my house. That place got expensive real quick. I don't know how that happened. But my son loves it, so we go occasionally. So you go into Golden Corral, and if you're standing in the aisle, uh, you got a salad bar, and then you got dessert. Now, I want to eat healthy. I, I want to, to fight the things that I have done to my body and try to live a healthier life. So I want salad. I want it smothered in bacon, cheese, and ranch, but I still want salad. But That chocolate cake looks delicious. I want that too. More often than not, I have chosen the cake. And you see what happens. We have those opposing things in our life. We want to do good. Paul said it in chapter 7, I want to do what's good, but the cake's right here. I really want to bite of that cake. And that bite, I'm going to eat the whole thing. Let's just be honest. We have these opposing desires that, that we try to fight in and of ourselves, but you can't do it. You can only fight it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the second passage that we see that relates to what we're talking about, and this is where we're going to wrap up this morning. It's over in Galatians chapter 5. So first we see in Galatians chapter 5 what it looks like for most people. Galatians 5:17 we read this. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. There's the two opposing forces. It even says that for these are opposed to each other to help to keep you from doing the things You want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. That's any sex outside of the biblical definition in marriage. That is, the gender confusion that we see going on That is outside of the bounds of what Paul is saying here. That is looking at pornography. That is having an eye for someone who's not your spouse or for some of you even taking the step of giving in to those temptations. Then he continues, idolatry, sorcery, idolatry, anything that you're putting above God is is an idol. Whether it's a career step or whether it's a a hobby, if it's above God in your life, it could even be your family. It's an idol to you. Paul says that is evidence of the flesh. He says sorcery. Now, most of us are good there, right? We got any sorcerers in here? Back in the back. (laughs) You're excommunicated from the church. Um, But really, if you compare that to modern times, what he would be talking about here is things like, new age beliefs uh, horoscopes um, palm reading meditation that's not biblical meditation biblical meditation is focusing on god new age meditation is emptying yourself of everything paul says those are those are fruits of the flesh Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, all dealing with relationships, how you treat people. You know, these are the things where like if you can't speak to someone without being in opposition to them, if you can't talk to your kids without always yelling at your kids, if you continue picking on everything with your spouse or your coworkers, you're always kind of. Dredging up this dissension or this division. That's what he's talking about here. Envy. You know, wanting things that aren't yours that belong to other people. Drunkenness, orgies. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. And things like these. So just in case he forgot anything, he throws that in there too. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He lays the gauntlet out there. And what he's saying is... If you're claiming to be a Christian and this is how you're living your life and in that you have no remorse, you have no repentance, then you probably have no Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit is not indwelling you if you can do these things and live that life and be cool with it. That is not to say we don't make mistakes down these paths sometimes the Holy Spirit changes you. And here's the thing about the Holy Spirit. It always produces fruit just by being in step with the Spirit. If the Spirit is present, it will produce fruit. Need a volunteer. The quicker you volunteer, the quicker we wrap this up. Come on, have one. You didn't raise a hand high. You didn't raise a hand high, but I saw some fingers, so. All right, do you like fruit? Yeah. All right, what's your favorite fruit? Grapefruit. Grapefruit. How does a grapefruit grow? On a tree. Okay, tree, all right. Be a tree. It's a little too uniform. A little too Egyptian. All right, a tree, you got to sway a little bit. Wind's blowing. All right, grow a grapefruit. I don't see one. How long will it take? How long does it take a grapefruit to grow? Oh, I don't know. I don't either. A few months maybe. Who knows? How long would it take you to grow one from your arm? Forever. How long would it take her to grow a grapefruit from her arm? Anybody? Never. We got a never? She says forever, so she <laughs> thinks it's possible, apparently. When I get to heaven, maybe. Yeah. Okay. You grab a seat. She, she can't grow a grapefruit. Here, here's the point. The Holy Spirit always produces fruit, but it's not your fruit. You can't grow it. Only the Holy Spirit can grow it. And if the Holy Spirit is not present, if you're not walking in step with the Spirit, you will not be producing true fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, and and to be clear, it's not the fruits of the Spirit. This is one fruit. This is how it plays out. These are all evident in the life of a believer who's walking in step with the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Then he says, against such things there is no law. In other words, if that's you, no condemnation. Are the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life? Are you walking in step with the Spirit? And I'm not saying that we get all of that right all the time. I mean, we all struggle with some of that. Some of you are impatient. I can be impatient. Faithfulness, we struggle with that sometimes. Self-control, that's the biggest part of it we struggle with. But those fruit will always be evident in your life if you're walking with the Spirit. But here's the thing. If you're not, you're cut off from the Spirit. It's not that He's not indwelling you. If you're a believer... You're still indwelt by the Spirit, but you have cut off his power in your life if you refuse to walk in step with him, seeking the things that are above and not the things of the flesh. So what if the greatest, what if the greatest risk or the greatest consequence of your sin isn't the damage that it does to you or to a relationship or to your finances? What if the greatest consequence is being cut off from the Spirit of God? We will always have desires. But when you walk in the step of the Spirit, those slowly begin to fade. Being a youth pastor, for 10 years. One, probably the greatest uh, thing that I counseled students on um, was pornography. And it wasn't just guys. I didn't counsel the girls on it but there was a struggle even with girls with pornography. where Most people don't think it but it, it's true today. But I saw it happen For those who would walk in the spirit, who would commit to to diving into scripture, to learning what they could, to being in communion with other believers, to worshiping in a group and to worshiping privately, to having prayer time, for those who made that choice, the desire began to fade for them. Not that it wasn't still there, but it wasn't so strong that they couldn't say no. And for those who just decided to keep doing things the way they did it, they're still struggling with pornography. And it's things like that you've gotta keep guarding yourself, keep walking in the spirit, because the minute you don't, they come right back up. It is a slow burn process. We will always have desires, but they slowly fade. They lose power over your life because you actively pursue the things in the spirit. while at the same time running from temptation. Flee. And it doesn't happen overnight. That's why this passage ends. And it says this, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, meaning you have killed the flesh. You are killing sin in your life because it's going to kill you if you don't. But the Example he uses here of crucifixion, we saw it literally in Jesus Christ. But crucifixion is a little different than other forms of execution. When you kill somebody by electrocution, they die instantly. When before a firing squad, they typically die instantly. When they go through our modern way of doing it through lethal injection, it's usually pretty instantaneous. Crucifixion was slow. And whoever was on the cross would bleed out. It's disgusting to think about. For days. Slow, agonizing death. Paul is saying that's what we do to our flesh. We crucify it. It's going to be slow. It's going to take time to kill it. But we must if we want to walk in the Spirit. And it's filling your mind with the things that are above and not the things of this world. Whatever preoccupies your mind controls your life. Whatever you're dwelling on, even things that can be good, not necessarily sinful, it controls your life. I went through a time in my life where Tennessee football controlled my life. I'm not kidding, if Tennessee, well, I won't say if Tennessee, when Tennessee lost to Florida, it was like two weeks before I got over it. Now, Tennessee loses to Florida, not anymore, we beat them last year, but you know, typically, Tennessee loses a game, yeah, that night sucks. Tomorrow, I'm cool. It doesn't stick with me, because it doesn't preoccupy me anymore, it's not what I am focused on anymore. Whatever preoccupies your mind controls your life. So, those things that are drawing you away from God, you run from them. You don't wean yourself off of them. You kill it. Sure, it's going to take time. But you now, you begin the process. You don't just slowly say, well, I'm not going to do it today. No, you kill it. You get away from the temptation. You, anything that's making you be away from the Lord, you cut it off. Because life is an expression of what you're filling your head with. So I encourage you as you go about your week dwell on the thought if you're in Christ there is no condemnation for you. You are forgiven you are unstained you are not guilty as the band returns up here some of you you're still preoccupied with self you've committed your life to Christ but you are still preoccupied with the things of this world because they do bring temporary pleasure and your mind is focused on getting the next or getting better or taking the next step or whatever it may be for you you need to repent this morning the Lord is calling you Paul is clear push the things of the world out of your head focus on the things of the spirit That doesn't mean you can't have nice things and enjoy things of the world. That means it cannot be what you're preoccupied with. And some of you, because I've been there, you are preoccupied with the things of the world. The Holy Spirit, you only give it access on Sunday mornings. Rest of the week, you're worried about everything in your life. You need to repent. So this morning, I call you. If you are a believer, and God has spoken to you today and said you are not walking in step with me repent some of you you need to take the first step to be committed to your life at Jesus at all you've never experienced the indwelling of the spirit but he's calling you this morning would you submit to the leading of the Spirit in your life? If you would bow your heads. I know it was a long message today. But it's one of the most important sections of scripture we're going to look at. If you're in Christ, you're not condemned, you're free. But you may you may need to repent this morning. The altar's open. Some of you are in Christ. You've never, been, you've never followed in scriptural baptism. You need to submit to that leading of the Spirit. And Some of you need to give your life to Jesus. If you don't know how to do it, it's really simple. Admit that you need Him, that He is who He says He is, that you're dead without Him. Commit your life to Him. Believe that He is the Savior, that He died on the cross for your sin. And then commit your life to following Him. Not just saying, Jesus, save me. Saying, I am yours. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'm committed. You can do that right now. Just ask God those things. Confess to Him. Admit who He is. Commit your life to Him. I'm going to be up front. Jesse and Craig are both in the back if you want to talk to anyone. If you need to repent, lay it on the altar. Come up here. I will be happy to pray with you. Would you follow the Spirit's leading this morning? Father in heaven, I come to you as the pastor of this church and I repent for the areas just in church leadership where we have followed our own ideas, our own desires, and our own preferences without being in step with the Spirit. So God, forgive us. Forgive me. Forgive the leadership of this church. And God, I know there are people in here who right now, they know that they're not in step with you. Lord, would you compel them to repentance? And for anyone in here who hasn't made that commitment to follow you, to commit their life to Jesus Christ as Lord, draw them out right now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The altar's open. Move if the Lord's telling you to move. Don't quench the Spirit working in your life. Be bold.